Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Red Mage Podcast. Before getting into today's episode, I'd like to ask the audience to consider checking out my site at theredmagepodcast.com and consider supporting the podcast by joining my Patreon, making a purchase of the shop, or simply sharing this podcast with a colleague. Now, with that out of the way, let's get into this week's episode. This week, we're exploring the potential of games as critical technologies for mental health. This is part of the research stage in examining esports as a soft case study of extreme work conditions in this season's project. So, to explore the potential of games as critical tools for mental health, I'm using the following literature to inform my research. Role-playing games, a transmedia approach, edited by Jose P. Zala, and Sebastian uh, Detterding. Integrating Geek Culture into Therapeutic Practice, The Clinician's Guide to Geek Therapy by Anthony Bean. Working with video games and uh, <laughs> working with video gamers and games and therapy by Anthony Bean. Critical Play, Radical Game Design by Mary Flanagan. The Psychology of Video Games and the Psychology of Everything, Cecilia Hoden. Shared Fantasy by Gary Allen Fine, Rules of Play by Salem and Zinnerman, and Homo Ludens by Johan, Johan Huzinga. So, let's start off by talking about the word game. I feel that when I say game, that I make the assumption that my, my listeners will immediately associate that to a video game. Um, and that's not bad, but it can be very limiting, especially when designing a solution for individuals who are spending most of their time um, in front of a computer. If we broaden our scope, we will need to find a definition of game that allows us to implement various high or low tech solutions, as well as look at op- other options uh, for designing for virtual and physical spaces. The best outline to provide a broad idea of a game comes from Salem and Zimmerman's Rules of Play. Salem and Zimmerman define six key concepts that outline a game. These six key concepts are, number one, a game is a system, meaning that there are functional and interactional, uh, interrelated, interdependent elements forming a complex whole. Number two, it's artificial. Games maintain a boundary from real life in both time and space. This is based off the concept of Johan Huizinga's magic circle, where play is conducted in a designated space for a duration of time. Number three, it has players, meaning one or more people can play actively. Uh, However, genres known as idle games also exist where players can be passive, but even in idle games, I want to acknowledge that there are still various interactions and decisions that are required from players. Number four, games have conflict. All games embody a contest of powers which can take multiple forms. This includes co-op, competitive, solo players versus a game system, and multiplayer objectives. Number five, it has rules. Players agree to the rules, and these rules provide structure to the game. This allows players to know what they're capable of doing and what they need to refrain from doing. 
as well as the consequences and feedback mechanisms that kind of come into play. Number six, the final um, key concept. It contains a quantifiable outcome or a goal. Games basically have a measurable outcome or objective that you're trying to reach. This includes things along a numerical score, lives, or some other kind of calculatable feedback that allows the player to know the results of their actions. And ultimately, what, what comes out of that. So these are the, key, the six key concepts. But these six key concepts give a really nice broad outline of what a game is. With that in mind, I want to emphasize a couple points. The first point I want to emphasize is that these, def these definitions are derived from eight different definitions um, in rules of play that examine um, you know, these, these definitions presented by David Parlett, Craxy Apt, Johan Huzinga, Roger Colois, Bernard Zutz, Christopher Crawford, Greg Kostanian, uh, I butchered his name, and Elliot Avon and uh, Brian Sutton Smith. And it synthesizes, um, or I should say Salem and Zimmerman in their book, Rules of Play, really kind of like scrutinize and synthesize these, their six points from examining all of these, all of these proposed definitions of, of games and play. So the second point I want to emphasize to the audience is that players in a game have to be willing participants. If players are forced to play a game, then it's no longer a game. Instead, it becomes tedious work and that disintegrates any potential for immersion and serious participation. And this is really emphasized by Huizinga and Homo Ludens. And I've also noted this out in the field doing observations. So the last thing I want to bring to light that when we're talking about creating games is that there are this focus on solely digital technologies and this horrible, horrible obsession with points, badges, and leaderboards. And I'll clarify as we, we discuss game-based learning and gamification a little later, but I, I first want to really just address these points. First off, when designing a game that addresses wicked problems, you always have to remember that you're designing for a community. Community members should lead the way in defining these technologies that are best suited for them in their environment. You wouldn't want to propose an AR game to a community that doesn't really have reliable access to internet, or is doesn't even have cellular access. All these things should be considered and you should let the community lead that. And games can be as low-tech as using sock puppets or as high-tech as using augmented reality, but again, a game that tackles these wicked problems needs to focus on, needs to focus on accessibility and inclusion for the members of the community that the game is designed to service. So it's really important to allow research and community to inform the technology that you really want to leverage for the best possible results. Next, um, while there is a need for feedback and having players work towards a goal, how that is kind of shown to them and how that's kind of built into the system shouldn't rely solely on badges and leaderboards and points. Those are very superficial elements that can add to a game system, but they are not core elements that are necessary to build intrinsic motivation. Um, this has been talked about in For the Win, uh, great book, but it's it's a huge problem 
in the world of gamification. There's so much focus on these superficial elements, and that, that needs a change. And it's become so much a problem that the word gamification is slowly shifting over to this concept of game thinking, which is essentially the same thing. It's just an it's trying to get people to focus away from just these superficial elements and really focus on fun, friends, um, and feedback. And ways to really integrate an intrinsic desire to engage with that system. The pivotal aspect of a game is to generate that intrinsic motivation, and, it, and badges and leaderboards alone simply won't do that. In fact, I really highly recommend scrutinizing deploying points, badges, and leaderboards before building them out as a feature in your game. I advise this as there's really a potential to deter players and inhibit intrinsic motivation if these elements are haphazardly integrated, or if that, that integration really doesn't have a system to be stratified and, and allow for, for new players to be motivated to go up. Um, you know, an example of this is if you have a leaderboard and you see people like just top of top of the score, you know, just some, a million points, and then you have to start from scratch. There's, you know, kind of this anxiety to approach that because it feels like, well, you'll never get there. But if you were to have leaderboards and then you would have like top 10 in the world and then you would be able to kind of like break that down into like, okay, this is your rank. This is where you're kind of contending with people, and then you could check up the league above the leagues above you or tiers above you, and you could kind of get feedback to be like, okay, well, you're in order to advance to this level or to advance in, in this way in the leaderboard, um, you'll want to do X, Y, and Z, and that would be a good feedback system. And then you could kind of keep track of where they're going. You can also use ways to refresh leaderboards for weekly or biweekly, um, and one problem that also comes up in in the use of leaderboards, and I've talked to um, an esports fanatic um, who used to be in esports, and he he was saying that when it comes to esports, one of the misconceptions is the grinding of leaderboards, and that's not that's not what makes a good esports team, or that's not what makes a good player like at a professional level. There are so many other things like the ability to work under pressure, split decisions, understanding in the environment, um, game mechanics, teamwork, most importantly. Teamwork is, is key. And all of these things kind of come together and coalesce, especially when you're trying to gamify a system. So now going on to, um, going back, I should say, to measurable outcomes, yeah, these can be points and they can be displayed on the leaderboard, but there's other ways to also show, you know, these outcomes um, and objectives being being obtained. So not everything should be defined by a numeric value. Not saying that it, it shouldn't or it can't, but it, it should be very well thought out. And objectives can also include visible change to a player's environment, like for example, the Domain Enclave in Final Fantasy XIV. As you contribute to this, to the development of this area, you see the result in the industry building, and then you unlock a new area, and it's a visible change that occurs over time. 
Another one is a massive character development and a narrative-heavy game like The Walking Dead, where you, you see a lot of, of character arcs, and it's, and it's really awesome. Another one is to overcome one's limits, how to get better against oneself, like just push oneself. And that, that could be seen in games like Tetris, where you're just continuing on, and you know there's, a, there's at some point you're going to fail, but that strive to do better than you did last time, get faster, get um, you know farther along in levels, that's another kind of outcome. And then seeing that represented by the number of points or how far you got in the level would be, would be really good. And lastly, I think just being left to deal with the consequences of one's actions, kind of like in Undertale or Life is Strange, and that'll have a deep emotional impact that could highlight a lot of stuff. Now, I know that I'm kind of coming off of like, well, games, 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 but why is it important or why am I looking at, at games and why am I asking the question of like, how do I design a game as an empathy game designer? And if we break that down further, we can ask, what's the most appropriate approach? A game, game-based learning, or a gamified platform? So let's go through all three of these real quick. Let's go, let's start with gamification. That has more of a universal understanding right now because a lot of platforms are being gamified. Gamifica gamification is when you're applying um, game elements to a non-gaming system. And it's great for, for pushing uh, intrinsic motivation and engagement. And the, the core elements of that are gonna be friends, fun and feedback is it is it entertaining do people feel delighted do are you getting feedback to know how you're doing what needs to be fixed or that you're doing great and continue that on and friends is like that that social aspect of it and this is taken from for the win um one book that i forgot to mention up a little earlier well on the other hand you have game-based learning which is just short for learning through a video game. Um, and when we look at when to deploy these, I looked at an article um, from Learning Legends titled Game-Based Learning versus Gamification. What's the difference? While both produce similar results in kind of building engagement and autonomy and mastery of something, it's really kind of depends on the circumstances and necessary objectives. Gamification is best for, for systems that need to lever need to be a system and not a game, but can a reach a, a better potential of, of engagement through leveraging game-based elements to increase engagement and intrinsic motivation. Game-based learning really is optimal when you're trying to like teach a, a subject and, and build a virtual world and you, you don't have to modify a pre-existing infrastructure. Now, what about just a game? So, referencing the method proposed by Mary Flanagan in Critical Play, and starting with an objective, developing rules, designing a prototype, and playtesting, a critical game can address learning goals such as game-based learning, but it could also be implemented to address other goals such as therapy, social rehearsal, behavioral change, and business objectives through various interactions. As noted earlier, a game is defined by those six key points, um, 
which were which were proposed by Salem and Zimmerman, and in the book Rules of Play. So let's look at an example of how this could work for a business, and why you would use a game. So a recent example, or not so recent, but more popular because of, of, of the company, Blizzard created a uh, alternate reality game, or ARG, for Overwatch. And it was to introduce a new character named Sombra. So before we get into this case study, let's start off by defining what an ARG is. According to an article by eLearning Industry, an ARG is a live event, digital and or physical, um, the direction of which might change based on how players interact with the story and the game. So Blizzard utilized uh, environmental storytelling within Overwatch through voice lines, clues, um, and small like images and, and media that, that would be discovered by the players to piece together some kind of narrative. Then they also leverage social media, developer updates, um, and animations and comics to leave clues and ciphers for players to piece together and discover the identity of a potential new character. They this strive to create an immersive experience that aspired to boost um, player engagement and build excitement for the reveal of this character named Sombra. So Sombra, the character, is a hacker. So this entire ARG was hacker-based. And while I was unable to kind of look at the, find the marketing statistics or any metrics um, to be published by Blizzard on this, I was able to find a couple articles uh, that discuss the success of this ARG. In an article by Forbes titled, Blizzard's Overwatch Sombra ARG, Reveal Has Gone From Creative to Stupid, argues that the complexity of the ARG was, was way too high, way too demanding, and had too little payoff. Part of, part of the reason for this was because some people actually had to know how to hack in order to be able to decipher all this. There, there was no cipher provided. Um, people had to know how to use certain pre-existing ciphers, know how to examine certain images and piece together certain things, and be digital sleuths. On the bright side, what this article doesn't address is that there, there were members of the community that were capable of this, or that were able to kind of collaborate with others who had the skill set in order to, to kind of follow these clues. Alternatively, an article by Kotaku called um, Blizzard on Sombra's Overwatch, we're not very good at ARGs, reflects on the good and bad of this. The article explores how the buildup be build became overstayed and long going and became problematic. The reason a lot of fans grew intolerant of the Sombra ARG is because it a trip it it was because it didn't meet player expectations. Again, the level of complexity of the ARG was, was really high, and it went on for too long. However, the lead hero designer, uh, Geoff Goodman, discusses some of the positive aspects regarding the community interaction with the ARG, while humbly accepting the community feedback and seeing opportunities to improve upon the experience. Goodman's positive outlook um, on the outcomes of the Sombra ARG are justified, and this is apparent because of 
because of six things. There were community members that had the skill set to um, decipher clues and share findings with the community, and this created a buzz. There was a bud that, buzz that led to a lot of community fan theories, um, explorations, and, and concepts, and trying to figure out who this character is. There exists, there still exist fan theory videos regarding Sombra on YouTube. The Sombra ARG added extensively to the lore of Overwatch, which is really great, um, especially since it's now consumable in these like short fan-made like videos in order to explain to other community members. Next, there are a lot of community fan fictions involving Sombra, showing like that even though that some aspects of this ARG were difficult, Sombra as a character in, in, the, in the Overwatch universe was still kind of beloved by the players. And lastly, the most important is that Blizzard gained a lot of insight on their player base based on how this went, regardless of some of the shortcomings. One of the most important things in here that I recognize as an HXCI designer are the engagement metrics and the feedback collection from fans. Not only does this help kind of inform the Overwatch team how to best engage fans, but it also defines what to avoid in future iterations for creative marketing strategies. And in fact, I would even argue that the Sombra ARG was an excellent first iteration of an ARG and examining on what it can provide as a framework for a second iteration for future marketing strategies to be more accessible, inclusive, engaging, and satisfying to players. When scrutinizing this ARG, what immediately comes to mind too is a need to define success um, and how to contain elements of failure. This ARG really, really kind of like did a good job of serving as a case study. And what I think Blizzard did really well was that while it wasn't optimal in duration and complexity, there were a lot of valuable insights that were derived based on the user feedback. Um, and the fact that Blizzard was humble enough to say, hey, we understand some of this and we're gonna reach out to fans and work with the community is really important. That also opens up a lot of avenues to get, to, to co-create with the community and see what would be a more appropriate marketing plan, or if they wanted to use ARG again, how to best go about that. And ARGs can get really complicated because there are a lot of moving pieces. When you're doing something that large a scale and multi-channel, there's, there's a lot of pieces that could kind of go through. And with Sombra as a, a hacker character, I could see the spin on what they were trying to do with, with examining and stuff, but there's there's also like, you know, how, how accessible is that to everyone? What's the skill level of everyone to do that? How tedious is that? But I think now they have some really, really great feedback in thinking of how to use their platforms, how to use their social media and so forth to really improve upon that. And I know I kind of reiterated that, but like I, I can't reel that enough. Part of the 
the mitigation strategy and in, in defining like the acceptable parameters for fail is how to get that if if something fails or has certain shortcomings how to transmute that basically into opportunities to seize key data on your on your target market and how to improve um, for an overall better experience next time and i give blizzard a lot of credit for that all right all right so <laughs> we've gone over over ARGs, game-based learning, gamification, and games, at, at least kind of the, the gist of all those. And we've even provided an example of an ARG that served as a good case study for highlights and um, some, some shortcomings. So what about in therapy and in behavioral change? How can games be used as a critical technology to help clinicians um, treat patients and clients? What kind of services could be offered in that? So in exploring this, um, the potential games to address anxiety, stress, and burnout, I turned to a method called literature review, which is basically going through um, publications uh, and scholarly articles to see what what has been applied so far and what opportunities or potential opportunities that exist in using games as a critical technology. So thanks to the book, uh, Role-Playing Games, a Transmedia Approach, I discovered that games are currently being deployed for behavioral psychology, cognitive psychology, developmental psychology, and clinical psychology. In particular, role-playing has demonstrated a lot of potential as a therapeutic tool. So two forms of role-play that are mentioned in Role-Playing Games, a Transmedia Approach are the use of psychodramas, which are a method of group psychotherapy developed by Moreno, where patients stage and enact inner conflicts or scenes from the past with the help of a group to reflect on them and then find alternative methods of coping under the supervision of a therapist. And leisure role-playing games, which are basically role-playing games that you kind of played for fun and escapism, such as Dungeons and Dragons. So with that, as I continued on to, to read in Role-Playing Games, a Transmedia um, Approach, it references um, a study conducted by Wayne D. Um, Blackmon in 1994, which used D&D to treat a patient with obsessional uh, schizoid personality, quoting, the study found that fantasy play released fears, enhanced ego de um, development, improved the, the patient's interactional abilities, and it increased the patient's feelings of comfort with, with himself. So there's a lot of potential for there in, in the role-playing to address some of these things. Um, in an interview I had um, while out in the field, or the, it's, it's weird saying out in the field because everything is virtual now, but I was able to schedule um, an interview with an ex-esports player and um, e now esports fan who's working as an electrical engineer. And one of the key things he said was professional development and being comfortable with yourself is really, really important when going on and taking on a, a job such as being an esports player because there's so many things kind of coming on. You have to be okay with loss. You have to be okay with criticism. You have to be open to 
to getting better and transforming yourself. You have to be able to negotiate and collaborate with your teammates in order to hit those next milestones. And what this highlights in here is the relationship with oneself for self-development. There seems to be potential there. Now, there are some concerns regarding role-playing games for therapy, such as over-involvement, frame confusion, and bleed that can occur from, from frame confusion. Let's start with over-involvement. Over-involvement um, is, is being referenced from Shared Fantasy by Gary Allen Fine, and this occurs when there's an attachment or over-attachment to a character in fictional world, and it begins to interfere with a person's everyday life. In this state, players aren't delusional, they're, they're not thinking they're in the fictional world, but they begin to demonstrate aspects of addiction by obsessing over the game and prioritizing uh, min-maxing the characters, developing the lore and all that, before needing to take care of all, all, all things that are like their job, um, personal care, eating, and so forth. So there's an over-dedication to it. Um, frame confusion and bleed are defined in geek culture into therapeutic practice, the clinician's guide to geek therapy. So what frame confusion is, is where when a player is um, engaged in a tabletop, they confuse um, events that are happening to their character with something that's actually happening to them. And bleed kind of stems out of this. and it, it has to do with an emotional exchange between the, the player and the character and how they may respond to it personally. So while that sounds like a deterrent to stay away from role-playing, it actually shouldn't be. It should, it's actually more of a tool that helps clinicians and mental health practitioners be able to identify and acknowledge uh, certain aspects that need to be addressed within their, their clients. The, and these elements need to be addressed when creating a therapeutic game. If you're not looking at the responsibilities and some of the potential down or pitfalls of creating a, a game that deals with therapy or deals with mental health, you're you're really not you're really ignoring some of the ethics and ignoring a lot of the the responsibility as a designer. So. When, when I go back to this book, Integrating Geek Culture into Therapeutic Practice, The Clinician's Guide to Geek Therapy by Dr. Anthony Bean, who does an excellent job of breaking down what's necessary to address these issues, by the way. Um, Dr. Bean begins by stating that it's necessary to have a therapeutic game master or therapeutic GM. And basically what this therapeutic game master or GM does is that they oversee the game and they help address factors like frame confusion, like bleed, like over, over, um, over involvement, and also help address certain, certain aspects to help curve behaviors and start introducing like elements to, to make changes. So what does it take to be a therapeutic GM? And that, that's, a, that's a very important question to ask because you can't just have anyone come in and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a game and I'm going to be the therapeutic GM. Well, I myself am a game designer 
and am and developing something like this this brings to light that while I'm developing this game I really need someone that is a mental health practitioner to join in and this is because the three distinct skill sets that need uh, that are necessary for this to be effective and to have it and to be a therapeutic GM or one if a therapeutic GM has to understand the game that they're playing they have to know it to a T they have to be able to break it down it doesn't mean if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons though or using that as a table as a as a tabletop for for therapy that you have to memorize every single spell but you have to know how that game works how to address certain things and then how how certain interactions play out you have to know all the elements of the game in order to ensure that people are going to get the or your clients are going to get the most out of it second a therapeutic gym must absolutely must have formal training as a mental health practitioner you should you should not and I will I will reiterate this you should not have a therapeutic GM or you can't even be a therapeutic GM if you don't have mental health training this is this is a degree this is a certificate and you should know where you're falling into with this it's incredibly important both ethically you know for for what is what is appropriate for this and so forth third therapeutic gms must have a willingness to play if you're not willing to play a game it's going to inhibit you and you're not going to be able to properly treat and address the needs of your client so with all three of those things kind of marked down a therapeutic gm will basically be able to control frame confusion and bleed and they'll be able to gain insights um, through play and help determine how to how to help the growth and development of their client. Dr. Bean regards tabletop RPGs or TTRPGs to be a powerful tool and it's a powerful tool because it uses fourth frame to explore emotions and relationships. In, in that book um, integrating Greek, Greek culture into therapeutic practice he states TT RPGs give therapeutic GMs powerful tools to combat societal and personal struggles when viewed through the fourth frame. Placing fictional avatars in fantastical settings allows for the therapeutic GM and players to discuss important or difficult topics with emotional distance. This is really important because the use of an avatar to explore these, these various pers perspectives and allow this emotional distance provides opportunities for flexibility and a method for safely engaging with the dissection of those behaviors and the changes that need to apply. It can be very difficult to just kind of come out and say something, but with this avatar, you can have that, that character live that life. You can have that character explore those decisions. You can scrutinize that character, and then you could adapt and mold yourself. And there's a, there's a form of safety and comfort in that, and that's really important. So when integrating geek culture into therapeutic practice, um, there's a series of these orientations that can be applied to uh, tabletop RPGs. And these are kind of these, these um, different ways of addressing stuff. First one is ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. 
And this leverages six core processes to instill psychological flexibility. Psychological flexibility is defined by mindfulness, values, committed actions, self as context, diffusion, and acceptance. Psychological inflexibility consists of being out of touch with the moment, avoidance of values, inaction, attachment to the conceptualized self, cognitive fusion, and uh, experiential avoidance. Then there's CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a triad of, of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that seek to identify, evaluate, and change unrealistic expectations, unhelpful beliefs, and develop new patterns of behavior. Third, there's humanistic therapy. So this addresses the incongruence between one's ideal self and their actual self. And there need to be three, three points checked off before using this that Dr. Bean um, talks about. These three points are that a client has to have personal responsibility, self-actualization, and there has to be importance placed on the subjective consciousness experience over objective reality. And through this form of therapy, the client works towards self-acceptance and an understanding of their own world. Fourth, there's group therapy. A group therapy session um, identifies these 11 factors um, that were talked about by Yalm, and Dr. Bean like emphasizes that and goes into that in his book. And these 11 factors help promote healing and change in, uh, in psychotherapy. And these 11 factors are the installation of hope, universality, imparting information, altruism, corrective recapitulation, socializing techniques, imitative behavior, interpersonal learning, group cohesiveness, catharsis, and existential factors. So we've gone over tabletops. In regards to video games, these this 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 you know this taximony game a video game um, is stated by Dr. Bean to be applicable to multiple clini uh, clinical theories, basically meaning that you can use this for various types of, of treatments. Dr. Bean argues that video games provide the following benefits that allow for this. They build rapport. They provide valuable information, insight, and understanding about their um, about a practitioner's clients. They allow for intervention within and outside of the gameplay. And lastly, they allowed for acquired skills to be applied into everyday life. So games allow for these these weaving of these of these tenets of psychiatric, behavioral, and humanistic theories that clinicians can use to treat their patients. These tenants can be applied to various digital platforms, um, and a couple examples of, of these genres of games that you can use are action, adventure, action-adventure, role-playing games, or RPGs for short, simulations, strategy, and other miscellaneous genres of gaming. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of genres and a lot of taxonomies. Um, when considering a digital platform, Dr. Bean mentions that it's important to speak the client's language. And by this, he means 
it's important to understand a client and how they express themselves through verbal and nonverbal communication and what they show interest in. If a client is shows potential for really liking a simulation game, there's potential to, to use that as a form of treatment. If a client leans more towards tabletops, you should be able to work with them on, you know, or, or leverage tabletops of their, of their choice to, to explore that. So lastly, um, Bean ties this uh, other book, The Therapeutic Powers of Play by Charles uh, Schaefer, uh, PhD, um, into examining why video games are, are a great medium or a critical tool that clinicians can use. And in Schaefer, his, his book outlines four main categories, fostering emotional wellness, enhancing social relationships, increasing personal strengths, and facilitating communication. And within all those, there's this kind of like breakdown of 20 core agents that apply to each of those four main categories. So video games um, align to this framework very well. And when a clinician is able to use this as a tool, they're able to identify out of, out of these four main categories, either an entire category or sections from each that they can address the problems or identify problems and start looking at ways to treat their clients. Um, so with that, you know, we've, we've gone over games, we've gone over the various kinds of like tabletops and then how this works into like this kind of like play system and why these are beneficial and how these could be critical technologies. Now, it would be really arrogant of me to be like, okay, well, I'm going to go create like the world's first like, you know, game system that addresses this. And that's not really true. It's important and very detrimental. Um, well, it, let, me, let me phrase this. It's, it's important to under, to explore all these potential organizations, existing systems, and technologies to see how to navigate through these spaces. And it's a detriment to assume that there are no organizations or tools that address mental health or what, whatever we would be designing for. Um, and, I, and I say whatever because this, this applies universally. So I took time to kind of, while, while doing all this literature review and um, SWOT analysis and so forth, I, I looked for seeing what technologies, uh, organizations, and platforms really are championing mental health right now. So in regards to therapy and well-being, the, the platforms I found were Mood Health, Headspace, Talkspace, Pride Counseling, and Doctor on Demand. I really, I really like Headspace approach approach to this. Um, the reason is because it's it's a multi-channel system that focuses on meditation to address feelings of anger, uh, anxiety, uh, you know, problems with sleep, and so forth. And they even had uh, a a Netflix series that just came out, and I thought that was a really cool way to kind of meet people in the spaces that they are. Now, Mood Health is another one that I, I really 
light because it focuses on two things and it's very clear in what it's offering. It's offering therapy and then it's offering a package for psych um, psychiatry and medication. And it kind of breaks everything down easily and simply. Talkspace is is another um, tele telever or teleclinical um, platform that allows for people to kind of come in and schedule appointments. Uh, they have twenty four hour service. Pride counseling is specifically for LGBTQ plus, um, and they have uh, it's like a teleclinical service as well. And then doctors on demand is more of this kind of like overall comprehensive service where you can get a doctor, you could get medications, you could get therapy, and it's all licensed and, and virtual. So I then con continue to look into um, organizations that were working to champion mental health and well-being. One that immediately stuck out to me was Students with Psychosis. Um, this is an organization that's looking to remove uh, stigmas of psychosis and find um, community resources, um, empower agents of change, and really kind of like collaborate with, with a giant network. And they're very, they're very strong on their social media game, on their platforms, and they're constantly um, putting out content to help champion this. And it, it is just a fantastic group. Um, the next one is uh, National Alliance of Mental Health. And this one I discovered by um, through an ethnographic interview. And I met one of the members that was a part of this organization um, looking to help provide like these, these mental health resources. And the story on that is that this person's child has a mental health condition that is, is difficult and a very extreme condition. And as an advocate and someone that is dealing with that, this provides a way to, to explore and, and deal with these elements. And it's an organization that I, I, I promote and I would like others to check out. Then there's the Parity Enforcement Coalition and the National Institute of Mental Health. These are also very important organizations um, that are champion for inclusion removing, and removing a stigma and provision of, of resources. Organizations that, now organizations that use uh, games for mental health are Geek Therapeutics, Gamers Outreach, Stack Up, and Rub and ride, uh, rise above the disorder. I want to take a moment to talk about rise um, above the disorder. Um, they were an, uh, a group called Game Anxiety before, and they transitioned into this this group and rebranded as Rise Above the Disorder to really open up and address a lot more clients and and people's needs, and they. I believe they still use games because um, I was I was looking on their about page and there's a lot of WoW players in there, um, which is really cool. And they they show and chronicle the history of how they started off with with using games as systems to address 
uh, things like anxiety and stress, and then continued on and developed into this much larger organization. The other group I, I, I love emphasizing is Geek Therapeutics. Um, I engage with them on, on social media. Um, I participate in their, in their live, in their live streams. And I've been using literature by Dr. Anthony Bean, who is the, the, I believe the co-founder of Geek Therapeutics. And the literature that is coming out of this is just, is really great. And it's a, and it's an amazing resource, um, for designers and anyone interested in looking into ways to use games for mental health or explore that. Um, so with these technologies and organizations identified, it's now kind of possible to examine all of these elements and their relationship with one another. It's also a great thing to start looking at this as a system and seeing how the dots connect and aligning platforms to co-create with and how to help the inter and how to help the community and what this this space will look like. A little more research is needed in, in order to inform um, the design for actual and or virtual space and how it's going to interact with these systems and what key partnerships would be really good for the first iteration and how to continue on forward. But with that, that is all the time we have for today. I want to once again thank you for listening and joining with me on this adventure to tackle wicked problems and co-create with the community. And I would like to, again, ask that listeners check out uh, my site, theredmagepodcast.com, and consider supporting through joining my Patreon, um, purchasing merchandise, or simply just sharing this podcast. And on a final note, I would like to ask my audience to check out Tara Furiani's podcast, Not the HR Lady, and to drop by her YouTube channel and check out the second, the se- um, the second season of Not the HR Lady as I had the pleasure of making a guest appearance on season two, episode three. Tara is is championing women's rights, LGBTQ and BIPOC um, communities and allies for creating a more inclusive, accessible and healthy work environment. And she she cuts through all of the, the boulder dash and linguistics. Um, that are are sound and safe and she addresses issues that no one wants to talk about and sheds light on ways that can can and ways things can be changed what needs to what needs to go down and she is just overall entertaining funny and really really knowledgeable so i highly suggest you check her out but that's enough of my spiel till next time keep innovating stay fantastic and hit your treble bottom line. Red Mage out.